of Scripture, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Peter, 1 Peter in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one that's in the chair back uh, there right in front of you, page 1014 uh, in the chair back Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, will be our text this morning, Uh, but permit me one more time to pray. Let us pray together. Father, as we Open your word. Would you anoint my lips to speak? Anoint my mind to comprehend, our minds to comprehend. Um, As we look at your word, and now I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In... 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Peter writing to the churches scattered abroad, encountering persecution, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The empty tomb of Jesus appeals to us this morning. It's likely that there are some here this morning who don't believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son, who don't believe that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, who died on the cross, rose from the grave, and then ascended to the Father. You might even describe yourself as a cynic, or you may even be hostile to Christianity, to the Bible, Uh, to the authority of God. Others this morning might be more along the line of casual attenders, and perhaps church gatherings are not that important to you, though you acknowledge that God is real. Maybe you acknowledge even that Jesus Christ is God's Son. But you've primarily come this morning because it's Easter Sunday, and it's the right thing to do for Easter, at least culturally in the South. And then maybe there are some this morning who have come that are just that are Christians, but that are walking through very, very deep struggles in life right now. And you just need to be reminded that God cares. You need to be reminded that Jesus understands the deep struggles that you're walking through. And you need to be refreshed because things seem harder than they should be, and your joy in Christ is missing from your life. And then I recognize that there are also some who are here this morning who would describe themselves as faithful Christians living joyfully and having come together as every other Sunday morning to worship God with people and to grow in holiness. 
And there are probably others that I haven't described that have gathered this morning to worship. So we're thankful that all of us are here this morning, and it's God's grace that we're all here this morning. But for each of us, wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum of, of being here as an attender, as a worshiper today, for each of us, this statement holds true. The empty tomb of Jesus appeals to us this morning. You know, perhaps the greatest apologetic for the resurrection of Christ is that the tomb was found empty on Sunday morning. Jesus' body wasn't there in the tomb, and in spite of a, a heavily guarded gravesite by Roman soldiers, and in spite of this mammoth stone being rolled in front of the entrance on resurrection morning, the guards were shocked. They were stunned at the events of resurrection morning. They had seen Jesus placed in the tomb. They had been guarding it for several days now, and, or this is the third day that they are guarding the tomb, and no one has been there until resurrection morning when a few ladies showed up early at dawn, one of the Gospels tell us. And they showed up there with burial spices. And when they got there with burial spices, they were ready to anoint Jesus' body and do the final preparations. But when they got there, they recognized that the stone, they saw that the stone had actually been rolled away. It wasn't there, and Jesus' body wasn't there either. Now, the historical events that we read in the gospel or in the gospel accounts, they they record for us a few things surrounding the resurrection story. And, and one of the things that we see is, is really, as it's recorded, the resurrection narrative on resurrection morning, it, it's too naive to be a falsified account. What I mean by that is a falsified story wouldn't put women at the empty tomb as the first witnesses to see a resurrected Jesus. A grave robber wouldn't fold the linen cloth that was on his face and leave it there for others to find. Matthew's gospel tells us that Roman soldiers were approached to scandalize the story of Christ's resurrection and give a large sum of money. All the disciples were clueless. None of the disciples were expecting Jesus to rise on the third day. They had heard Jesus speak of resurrection, but they didn't have the spiritual sight, the spiritual eyes, yet to see what he had been telling them was the truth. That was until they saw him. So this morning, I want us to see two points, two main points. The first point is that the resurrection gives us future assurance. The resurrection gives Christians future assurance. Through the resurrection, Jesus overcame death. That's what the resurrection is about. And this foundational truth of the Christian faith is a life-giving truth. In other words, one cannot be a Christian if he or she denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. This wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. So, how does the resurrection give us future assurance? Well, there are two pictures we have under the first point, and the first picture is a picture of, of God's mercy, God's mercy to give us new life. We see it in verses 3 and 4. 
The reason that Peter's able to praise God is because he's, he has experienced God's mercy for his own, own life. You see, we might define mercy as mercy not getting what we deserve. And Peter is one who would know something about not getting what he deserved. If you read through the gospel narrative, you'd see that Peter's the one who boldly proclaimed, I'll never deny you, Lord. Peter's the one that boldly stood in Jesus' face and said, you will not be killed. I'll protect you. Peter, Peter's the one who in the garden defended Jesus by cutting off the ear of one of the men who had come to arrest Jesus. And Peter's also the one who stood there and denied Jesus three times on the night of his crucifixion. Peter's the leader who had led the disciples after Jesus' crucifixion to go back fishing. Peter's the one who had boldly stepped out of the boat and then took his eyes off Jesus and began sinking in the water. Peter's the one who wrote this epistle to the churches. Peter knows something about experiencing God's mercy. And here in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter was one who knew God's great mercy because he was aware of his own great capacity for sin. That's why Peter knew God's mercy to be so great, because he, he was aware of just how much he messed it up. But you know, Peter's sinfulness is no different than your sinfulness or my sinfulness before God. You ever denied Jesus? Maybe you're standing around talking with a group of friends and they start speaking in a way to defame Christ or to speak negatively about God and you just kind of back off in the background not wanting to draw attention to yourself? You ever denied Jesus? Stakes were high that night when Jesus was about to be crucified and he was on trial. Peter, standing there, has the opportunity to say, yes, I know him, but instead he denies. Peter was one who knew God's mercy have you ever aggressively acted towards someone thinking that you were sharing the truth in love, but in the end you realized that you were just being selfish? Scripture calls this sin. There's so many other ways that we could kind of trace this out, right? But have you ever experienced God's mercy? Do you know God's mercy this morning? You see, the picture of God's mercy is that he gives us new life. The picture of God's mercy is that in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our repetitive and addictive pursuit of sin, God the Father has caused us to be born again. The word here is regeneration. And to be born again, this is the language that the New Testament uses to speak of this new life that God gives us. It speaks of being given new life through the saving work of Jesus Christ. In Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. 
And the point that Paul is making is the same point that Peter is making. When we come to faith in Christ, we become a new creation. He does this renewing, this newing work. He, he births us new. This is, what he told, this is what he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And so this, this new birth comes from coming in contact with Christ believing upon the work of resurrection. And because Christ was resurrected from the grave, this means he's given life to all who believe in him. Because he has the power to resurrect Christ from the grave, so he has the power, so, since Christ was resurrected from the grave, so he has the power to resurrect everyone who believes in him from the grave. And so he says, he continues, that we're born again. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, right? He, he contrasts that by saying a living hope. The key to understanding this living hope as distinguished from a dead hope is to look at the source. And so what's the source of this living hope? The source of this living hope is, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, as I, when I was a kid uh, playing ball, I always wanted baseball. I always wanted to play professional baseball. It was my hope. It was my dream. I really wanted that. But let me tell you, as a 38-year-old who's a pastor now, I realize that that hope, that dream is dead, right? No hope of resurrecting that dream. I can't go back. I can't relive things. It's just, it's not there anymore, right? It's dead. But we see here, this isn't a dead hope. The resurrection is a living hope. Why? Because Christ raised from the grave. He rose from the grave. He is alive. It's what we've sung about this morning. He's alive. And he calls it a living hope because Jesus defeated sin and he overcame death for us when he was raised from the grave. So theologians call this substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus became our substitute. He paid the price that we should have paid. Death. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath and he gives life to all who believe in him. This is the reality and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The living hope of the gospel. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we too know that we will rise from the grave, that death is not the end. He became our substitute. Jesus Christ took my place when he hung on the cross and he died a sinner's death. Peter's telling the church, because Jesus was resurrected from the grave, all who are in Christ have the same hope of resurrection. This is the hope of resurrection to new life. This is also what Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. You can read, along, read it and follow along on the screen. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Speaking about Adam, as through Adam, the hope of immortality was taken away because of Adam's sin. Now what he's saying is through Jesus, that restoration, that reconciliation of relationship with God, being made right with God, has now returned to humanity. It's through Christ that we have this new covenant and this hope 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So in verse 4, Peter points us even further to speak of an inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The future assurance for all who follow Christ is that there is an inheritance, and the inheritance of the believer secures our eternal dwelling in God's new heavens and new earth. And so this inheritance, he gives these characteristics about this inheritance, what we can expect, that it's incorruptible, meaning it's unlike the things of this earth. It doesn't have a shelf life. It won't decay. It won't rust away. Jesus kind of speaks to this in Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, right, when he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal, for your treasure is there, your heart will be also. This is an incorruptible, it was an, it's an incorruptible inheritance. It's also undefiled, meaning that it's pure. It's not subject to sinful people. It's not subject to defilement. But this inheritance is also unfading, meaning it, it, it won't lose its luster and its wonder. It's also not like the things of the earth. When you buy a new car, there's a lot of luster and wonder there, right? It's shiny, it smells clean and fresh, and looks great. And then a year later, you're still, still paying the note, and that luster and that wonder has kind of, kind of gone away, right? This, this inheritance, he says, it's an unfading inheritance. It won't wither, it won't become old. It's kept in heaven for you. But I, I want to make a distinction. Our final... <laughs> In, in understanding this inheritance, this final inheritance, it, it's, it's not that we're going to have some mansion on a hill. That's not the inheritance that Jesus or that Peter is pointing us to. And, and it's not that we'll have our, our, our portion of, of the streets of gold. You know, this thinking is the wrong way of thinking about heaven. As material creatures, we, we tend to go there. But the point is that our inheritance, our inheritance is Christ himself. Christ is the goal of our living. And so it leads us to the second picture. Not only do we get the picture of mercy, which gives us new life, we have the picture of God's power to guard our salvation. We see it in verse 5. It's God who has caused us to be born again, according to verse 3. And then it's God who keeps us, who holds us until the end. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed, in the last time. Our salvation is being guarded. Our lives in that matter, in that regard, are being guarded. But this word being guarded, speaking of God's work in in guarding us, God's power, we are being guarded, it's the same word for protective custody. And he's saying that we're under God's protective custody. It's God's power that's keeping us safe until the day of salvation. It's God's power that's holding on to our salvation until that final day. 
I, I wondered, as I was studying this and thinking through it, I, I wondered if, as Peter was writing these words to the churches, I wondered if he thought about Jesus' words to him in Luke's gospel. Jesus told Peter, he called him Simon, and he said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's not if you turn again, but when you have turned again, he says, strengthen your brothers. This is Jesus' word speaking to Peter. Peter writes to the churches about God's ability and God's power to hold on to them, to guard their salvation. This is just one example in Peter's life where he can look back and say, you know what? God's faithful. You know what? God was guarding my salvation. Believer, life will be full of hardships. It'll be full of struggles, full of doubts, and at times you may even question your faith. At times you may encounter seasons that make you question why or search feverishly even to find God when he, when he may seem silent. But in all of this, in all of it, know that God is not silent. Know that God is for you. Know that God is actively guarding your faith. And just as he prayed for Peter, so Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest who lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8 says for the believer. It tells us that the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. This is God at work in the life of his children, guarding and hanging on, holding on to us, holding on to our faith, our salvation. So through believing in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we are given new life. We're given a secure salvation, which is, which is our inheritance in Christ, the security of our salvation. Not only does the resurrection give us a future assurance, I want you to see that the resurrection shapes our present reality. The resurrection shapes our present reality. So it, it, it helps us to look off in the future, right? The resurrection, it gives us security that, that we have an eternal dwelling in God's presence. It gives, us, um, it gives us hope that because Christ was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead and brought to eternal life. This is the power of God at work. We have this hope for the future that, uh, that because we have confessed and believed in Christ that even in the most difficult days and the most dark days that God is at work in us, hanging on to us, holding on to us when we don't feel like we can hold on to our salvation. This is a reality. Peter speaks to it. It happened then. It still happens today. But we also see that the hope of resurrection shapes our present reality. You know, we're, we're familiar with this concept, the concept of, of something hopeful shaping our, our present reality. At, at least in small ways, when we're, when we're preparing for a family vacation, right? As we get ready and prepare for family vacation or prepare for a fun trip, as the time draws nearer, uh, our thoughts begin to be captivated by going on this trip and, and having a relaxing time. The closer the trip comes, the more excited we get. The closer the trip 
comes, we begin saving our money and spending our money differently, right? We, we do without a few things now so we can purchase some things to enjoy on this fun adventure, on this family trip. We begin prioritizing our schedules, ensuring that we've, we've dotted all the I's and we've crossed all the T's. We, we've got everything checked off the, to, the, 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 uh, the to-do list. And then we wake in the mornings with kind of a, a freshness in our step. Then the day of our departure arrives and we are ready. We, we take off on, on this adventure, on this safari. We, we go on this fun trip. And all the while, we're looking forward and thinking about the, the hope of our relaxing. The fun trip that we've been planning and waiting for has affected our present reality. In fact, it's affected our present reality so much so that, that we actually lived differently. Our mindsets have been different. Our countenance has been different. <laughs> Maybe you've been a more pleasant person to be around. When you come back, maybe you're a more pleasant person to be around, right? You've had time to relax. Our present reality is impacted by the hope of of this relaxing, fun vacation. Now, I want you to get what Peter's telling us. Peter's telling us in a much greater way about a much greater reality. The reality that the hope of resurrection has affected and will and should affect our day-to-day living. The hope of the resurrection should affect our day-to-day living. So we need to see that the hope of resurrection shapes our present reality. So one of the ways that this happens is by reflecting on what God has done for us in Christ And when we reflect on what God has done for us in Christ, it fills us with exceeding joy. Fills us with exceeding joy. Look in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about in this great truth of your salvation through the resurrection of Christ. In this, in this truth, in this reality, you rejoice. In fact, the word rejoice becomes a major part of verses 6 through 9, a major focus. It might surprise us to learn that, that Peter's writing to churches who are suffering intense persecution, and yet he's talking about rejoicing and he's talking about joy. So Peter reminds them of the great hope of their salvation. He reminds them of the security of their future, that no matter what happens in this life, there's an eternal reality, and there is a security through Christ that triumphs over even the worst, even over death. So he says, even though if necessary, various trials have grieved you. What I, what I want us to realize this morning as we you know, think about the hope of resurrection shaping our present reality and think about reflecting on what God has done for us in Christ, is that as Christians, we're not immune from difficulties in life. Hardships happen. And contrary to the prosperity gospel or the word of faith movement, no matter how much you believe and no matter how many seeds you sow, hardships and persecutions will come in life. In fact, Jesus told us to expect it in the Sermon on the Mount. As the early church lived boldly for Christ, they were living on the front lines, on the frontier of missions, of the gospel going to all the nations throughout the world. 
and they experienced sufferings and they experienced persecutions at the hand of the ungodly, at the hand of of the government. And it wasn't because they had little faith. It was because their trials were refining them. And in the midst of going through these trials, these these refining times, uh, these trials became the crucible where their faith was strengthened. So we see that in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus? You know what he's saying here? He's saying that your faith won't perish in the midst of these trials. He's saying it to the church. And he can say it with certainty, and he can say it with, with certainty to us. We can hear this with certainty, that in the midst of trials, our faith won't perish. Why? Because he says it's, it's more precious than gold. And gold is refined by fire. And if our lives are more precious than gold, then our, our lives too will be refined by fire, metaphorically, in the, the crucible of, of testing. But in the end, gold passes away, right? But in the end, the faith of the believer who's trusted in God in Christ, that doesn't pass away. So the point of these trials is to strengthen your faith. The point of these trials is to draw God's children to dependence upon him. Not to live independently of God, but to live dependently upon God. You know, in the American church, we say, God won't give us more than we can handle. Maybe you've even said that. So I'm not barking at you this morning but hear me out that's deceptive and it's a lie and the reason it's deceptive and the reason it's a lie is because God will in fact give us more than we can handle so that we depend on him what happens when your child dies what happens when your spouse gets cancer when a loved one tragically is killed by some drunk driver. If we think of a country where Christians are persecuted, even today, what happens when your family members are slaughtered in front of you because you have faith in Jesus Christ and you won't renounce your faith? What happens when you're arrested and locked up for years and you're beaten within inches of your life on a weekly basis and you refuse to deny your faith? Are we then going to stand and say, God won't give us more than we can handle? Because I want to submit to you that that is more than we can handle. So instead of standing on our own, let us turn to God so that the genuineness of our faith, though tested by the fires of persecution, though tested by the fires of suffering, though tested by the fires of of pain, maybe of abandonment, so that the genuineness of our faith is revealed as we are kept by God's power. And so Jesus knows about suffering. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, "For, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so what Peter's saying here is that our hope in Christ strengthens us in the midst of the sufferings that we endure. 
This is how faith is at work. It's strengthening us. So in verse 8, Peter says, though you have not seen him, Jesus, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so Peter just made a big jump, right? From suffering to rejoicing with joy. And oftentimes when people speak about joy, they mean happiness. But that's not what Peter is speaking about in the text. That's not what the biblical picture of joy is. The joy that Peter speaks about, it's not determined by our circumstances. It's not determined by financial security, by by job promotion, by a raise, by the praise of others. Joy isn't determined by our emotions, the way that we feel. And it's not driven by relationships. All of these are just temporal And the temptation that we face is to let these temporal things be the drivers or conversely the the detractors of joy in our lives. But when scripture speaks of joy, it speaks of an inner peace. It speaks of a contentment that that transcends the circumstances of our lives. It speaks of, of joy coming through this inner peace of knowing Christ so that the believer is able to rejoice even under persecution, even under poverty, even in the face of death. The reason is because our hope in Christ points us beyond our trials. Our hope in Christ points us to what verse 9 says, the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. So joy in the Christian life is a byproduct of faith in Christ, of believing. That's why he says at the end of verse 8, this joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. If you're struggling to understand the definition of joy, it's because it's inexpressible. You have to experience it. You have to experience this joy by coming to faith in Christ. In that sense, it's inexpressible that that, that the Christian could go through such difficult and torturous and suffering circumstances and situations, not all Christians, but that the Christian could go through that and still have the inner peace of Christ, a peace which passes all understanding, as we read in Philippians. Joy in the Christian's life is a byproduct of faith. And the joy that Peter is speaking about is joy that can, be, that can only be known and experienced through the new birth in Christ. This is the hope of resurrection, the new birth in Christ. Because Christ lives, we too can live. And so the empty tomb appeals to us this morning. The empty tomb appeals to us, come and worship Believe in the God of all creation who condescended and became man in order to die for our sins and raise from the dead to give the security of eternal life to all who believe in him. The empty tomb appeals to us this morning. Do you know the mercy of God? Do you know eternal life that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, believing in the resurrection? confessing your sin before him and trusting him as savior the empty tomb appeals to us this morning not to take god's grace in vain 
Christ's resurrection from the dead matters and it has eternal importance for our souls. The empty tomb appeals to us this morning, reminding us that Jesus understands the sins and the struggles that weigh us down because he died to pay the price for those very sins. And so we can turn to Christ. We can have the inner peace that comes from him and learn to rejoice with joy inexpressible. And the empty tomb appeals to us this morning to worship God and to have fellowship with our creator because Jesus is alive and we have hope because he is alive. I'm going to pray. And this morning, your response, maybe it's to stand in a moment and just declare praise to God. Maybe for you, the response is to confess Christ as Lord, and that's, that's what you sense you need to do this morning. And if that be the case, I want you to know that we'd be happy to talk to you about what it means to trust and believe in Christ. And after the service, uh, one of our elders will be standing over here on the right side of the stage by the cross, and we'd love to speak with you more about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him. You respond this morning as the Lord leads you. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are good and you are gracious and you are so merciful. Thank you that you've looked upon us, that you've seen our sin and that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled to you. Though we don't deserve it, you have given us your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, for resurrecting from the grave and defeating sin and death so that we might have the hope of eternal life. And I pray, God, for your strength this morning for anyone here who's struggling or on the fence of whether or not to surrender their life to you. I pray, God, that you would give them encouragement and strength to respond. Lead them by your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you would equip equip your people with hope and strength to bear up under the midst of difficult circumstances and situations and to trust in you and to reflect upon your goodness upon what you have done for us in Christ our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?